All right, so as we are continuing our study tonight through the major themes of the Bible, we're arriving at a topic. I've written it on the board already. That's one of the most difficult topics, I think, for us to deal with in the entire Bible. I, I'm, I was a little reluctant. I almost skipped this in this study because I thought to myself, in 30 minutes, I think what I'm, going to, what, what I'm going to end up doing is leaving you with more questions than answers. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's important. This is one of the most difficult topics that we can deal with theologically or philosophically. And we're going to be discussing the sovereignty of God. Uh, and, and what do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Like what, somebody help me out just real quick. What do you think that sovereignty is? A king, right. And when we speak of God's sovereignty or his kingship, uh, God as our king, what we're really talking about is God as the supreme authority, the supreme uh, power, or the supreme control in creation. That God is ultimately in control. And this is really important to us. Really important to us, especially because we've seen already as we've been walking through the themes of the book of Genesis uh, in the early parts of it, we've seen that God makes us some promises about what's going to happen in the future. And so we need to know if God's made those promises that things are going to happen, is God able to make sure that they happen? And this is a really important theme for us to understand. He's made us these promises. For instance, in Genesis 3.15, when we talked about the fall, we didn't spend much time on the curse that God pronounced after the fall. But one of the things he did was he cursed Satan. And he said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise, crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that was the first, we say that's the first time that the gospel is announced in the Bible foreshadowing the coming of Jesus when he would eventually defeat Satan and defeat death and crush his head. Even though Satan would wound him, Jesus would be victorious. And so there's the first promise all the way in Genesis chapter 3 that, that the Savior's coming, one is coming who's going to win ultimately. He's going to do it. And then we saw in the promises to Abram, Genesis 12, 3, when God promises to bless Abram and to bless uh, the people who bless him and curse the people who curse him. And he ends that promise with saying, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a blessing coming through you, through these people that I've set aside, and I'm going to bless all the people of the earth through you. So God makes promises in the very beginning about the fact that even though creation has fallen into sin, God has a plan to redeem his creation. And so that leaves us again with the question, does God have the ability to make good on the promises that he's given us? And that's a question really about sovereignty. If God is sovereign over his creation, then the answer to that question is yes. If God is the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, if he's in control, then the answer to that question is yes. If God is not sovereign, then the answer is no. If God's not sovereign, then he doesn't really, truly have the ability to keep the promises that he's made. Now, even though we said that this is a really difficult theological and philosophical question, I really do think that this is one of the most practical things. Like last time we met, 
I taught you the Abrahamic covenant, and I could see that you were all thrilled and excited and raptured in your spirit, and you were, you, and it, I know that that wasn't the most exciting thing. It's important to understand, but this, it really is exciting. It really is practical, because we talk about this in practical terms in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans 8, 28. So we all know that verse. We all know it. We all we know that those who love God, for those who love God, He's working all things together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And in that statement, Paul is making a declaration, and when we repeat it, we're making a declaration about what? About the sovereignty of God. That God's in control, that God is working all things together for our good. So does God have the ability to work? All things together. All things. Not some things, but all things together for our good. And again, if God is sovereign, the answer is yes. If God is not sovereign, no. And we believe that God, or that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. God absolutely is sovereign. We believe that the Bible teaches that He's the supreme power, that He's in complete and supreme control of His creation. And I think that one of the best ways for us to come to an understanding of the sovereignty of God is just to look at a living example of sovereignty. And that's what we find in the closing chapters of the book of Genesis. In fact, a big chunk of the book of Genesis at the end, beginning in chapter 37 and moving all the way forward to the end, gives us an example of God's sovereignty in action. So by the time we get to chapter 15, and we've skipped over a bunch of stuff, haven't we? Like we've skipped over a lot in the book of Genesis. We we went through creation. We went through the creation of the universe, the creation of man. We dealt with the fall, and then we skipped ahead to Abraham. But but we missed a lot of stuff in there. We missed the uh, the flood. We missed Noah. We missed his family. We missed all the uh, really the uh, the patriarchal fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we really haven't talked much about Isaac and Jacob in there. So we're skipping all the way forward. And tonight I want you to open to Genesis chapter 50. So go all the way to the end. Genesis chapter 50. And that's where we're going to read tonight. All right, Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So now we're at the end of the story and we skipped over. The entire story to get there. So now let me give you the Cliff Notes version of of how we arrived at that passage of Scripture where we find Joseph standing with his brothers, and his brothers are in absolute terror, standing before Joseph thinking that their brother was going to kill them 
or do something awful to them. And Joseph says to them, I'm not going to do anything to you because you did evil to me, but God meant it for good. Now, how do we get to that place? Now, remember, we're looking for a living example of the sovereignty of God. So it begins in chapter 37. You don't have to turn there and try to follow along because I'm just going to rock it through the whole story. There's a lot to it. In Genesis chapter 37, we have Joseph, and he's uh, 17 years old. And he's got older brothers, 10 older brothers, that absolutely can't stand him. And the reason is because he's Jacob's favorite. He's the father's favorite. Jacob makes him this coat of many colors we know about. We remember learning about that when we were little kids in Sunday school. And he gives us the, the coat of many colors. And he's always lavishing love and praise on Joseph. And brothers can't stand him. Not only that, but then he begins to have these dreams. And he has dreams which basically mean that, or when they're interpreted, mean that he believes that his brothers are going to have to bow down before him and show reverence to him. And in the second dream, he says, not only will the brothers do it, but so will the father and the mother. Jacob and, and his mother also have to do it. And so everybody's a little bit upset with Joseph. And they send this kid, this 17-year-old kid. Jacob says, go out, find your brothers, check on them. They're out tending to the flocks and to the herds. So go out and check on them. So he goes out to check on them. And how many of you are familiar with this story? So I can I'm move quickly. So he goes out to check on them. They see him coming, and the brothers look at him. And they say, ah, now's our chance. Let's kill this guy and get rid of him once and for all. Let's just do away with it. None of us like him anyway. He's nothing but a thorn in our side. So let's just kill him while we're out here, and we'll take his robe, and, and we'll douse it in blood. We'll take it back to our father, and he, he, won't know any, he won't be any of the wiser. Let's just get rid of him, and I have to deal with him anymore. But one of the brothers, who's kind and wants to save his brother, says, No, instead of killing him, let's just throw him in a pit. Let's just leave him out here. And they finally come up with a much kinder plan in the end, which is to sell their brother into slavery. And the kindness of their hearts. If you say, oh, he is our flesh. He is our blood. So let's not hurt him. Let's just sell him. And so they sell him into slavery. These Midianite traders come along. They take him. They take him away. They go through with their plan to, to make Jacob believe that Joseph's been killed. And they, he's sold into slavery. They take him down to Egypt. He's sold there to a man named Potiphar. And he goes to work as a servant in Potiphar's home. And Potiphar was a high official in Egypt, one of Pharaoh's highest officials, and Joseph becomes a superstar in Potiphar's home. And there, everything he does, God blesses. God's with him in everything that he does, and eventually he becomes in charge of basically everything that belongs to Potiphar. All of his house, all of his possessions, all of his affairs now fall under the headship of Joseph. And the only problem is, that Potiphar's wife is one of the most scandalous women you ever come across. And she decides that even though Joseph's a good man, and he's been entrusted with all of the household of her husband, that she would like to have an affair with Joseph. Well, of course, Joseph doesn't want to do that. He's a godly man, and he refuses, and he refuses, and he refuses, until eventually one day he refuses, embarrasses her, and she decides to accuse him of an attempted rape, which Potiphar believes and cast him into prison. So now he's in prison. This guy's not having a good run of it. So by the way, Joseph's a good example of somebody who was really faithful and just kept getting beat up and beat up and beat up. And so he's in prison. 
And now he's in prison. And again, he gets into prison, and he has the same success there. And eventually, he becomes so successful in prison, and he's such a blessing to the people in prison that they make him basically the, 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 the prisoner in charge of the prisoners. And he's running the affairs of the prison. And lo and behold, at one point, the, these two officials uh, from Pharaoh's court end up in prison. They've angered Pharaoh for some reason that we don't know. It's Pharaoh's cupbearer and his head baker. They end up down there, and they have dreams, and they're looking for somebody to interpret the dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams. One for the cupbearer first. You remember how this goes? It's kind of comical in a sense. He interprets his dream and says, based on your dream in three days, Pharaoh's going to call you out of prison, and he's going to restore you to your position. The baker says, well... That's good news. I like that. How about me? Joseph says, according to your dream, Pharaoh in three days is going to call you up out of prison and he's going to hang you by your neck and birds are going to eat your flesh. Not exactly what he was looking for. But nonetheless, he tells these guys, when you're called up out of prison, remember me. Tell Pharaoh what I did so that he can let me go and that he can send me back to where I belong. Of course, they go up. One's restored, one is hung up in a tree, and they forget about Joseph. And for two more years, for two more years, he's down there in that prison. Until eventually, Pharaoh has a dream. He has two dreams. He's looking for somebody to interpret the dreams. Nobody can do it. The magicians can't do it. The cupbearer remembers. He remembers Joseph. He says, I know this Hebrew. He interpreted a dream of mine. He can do it. So he calls him up. He gives them an interpretation, which basically says, Pharaoh, here's what's coming. And we're going to look at this more closely because there's a key verse in Genesis 41, 25 that we need to look at in a few minutes. But he says, essentially, here's what your dreams mean. There's going to be seven years of plenty. God's going to pour out blessing for seven years. You're going to be blessed. And then after that, there's going to be seven years of terrible famine. And so he says, here's what we need to do. We need to take for these first seven years and store up a fifth of everything that's collected in Egypt, put it in storehouses so that during the the famine, there'll be enough for us to be sustained through the famine and and survive. And Pharaoh decides that because he's so wise, because he's interpreted his dreams well, that he elevates Joseph to second in command over the whole kingdom. Joseph becomes almost Pharaoh. I mean, he's that close. Pharaoh says, the only thing that you're not is me. But other than that, you have control over the whole kingdom. And then you know how the story goes. So the famine comes. The only place around in that region that has storehouses that can sustain them through the famine, the only place is Egypt. And Joseph's brothers and his family are starving. God's people the nation, the young nation of Israel is starving to death. And so Jacob says to the boys, go up to Egypt and see if there's anything there that we can buy, that we can make it through this. And they arrive in Egypt and they arrive in the presence of the brother that they sold into slavery so many years ago. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And the story goes, he basically, in a sense, not in an evil sense, but kind of has his way with unveiling who he is to them and tests them and sort of catches them. But eventually they discover 
who he is, and they all come into Egypt, and he invites them. They come. He's reunited with his father in tears and weeping, and they're there, and Pharaoh gives them the best land in the whole region to graze their flocks. And, and now here they are in Egypt. Joseph has rescued his family. He's rescued God's people, and they're settled there. And that's how we get to chapter 50. Now Jacob dies, and the brothers say, He's been waiting this whole time. The only reason he didn't kill us is because dad was still alive. But now dad's gone, and without a doubt, he's going to kill us. They hatch another plan. They go to him and say, basically, Joseph, before dad died, one of his last requests was that you not kill us. Yeah, these guys, these guys. And so they're there begging for their lives. And Joseph responds. And it's like you get the sense that this doesn't just come off the cuff. I I think that over the years, he's thought the whole thing through. And I think that he comes up with this because he's had some time to understand things and look at things. and, And he says to them there in verse 19, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? And then in verse 20, this amazing statement. As for you, you meant evil against me. Or some of the older translations would just say, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Now, that statement alone, I think, would be enough, I think, should be enough for us to be able to say that God was in control the entire time, that God was sovereign the whole time. But it's interesting, I think, that Joseph doesn't let his brothers off the hook. Do you notice that? You notice that he doesn't just say... I'm not in the place of God. God's been in control of this whole thing. God meant this whole thing for good. Let's just move on with our lives. He doesn't do that, does he? He makes it a point to say what? What you did was evil. What you did, you did with evil intent. And I think that here is where the real tension and the real struggle comes in for us when we talk about the sovereignty of God. And here's where I think all of us feel tension rising inside of us when we begin to talk about the sovereignty of God. And I think it's because most of us wouldn't have a problem affirming necessarily that God is sovereign. But the real tension, I think, is in in the relationship between God's sovereignty and our actions. Like, if God is sovereign... Here's the question. Am I free? If God is sovereign, am I free? And if you can reverse that and say, if I'm free, 
How can God be sovereign? There's a tension there, isn't there? There's a big tension there. And I think the, the best way for us to deal with the tension, I was going to say resolve the tension. That's not the right word. But the best way for us to deal with the tension is just to ask two questions and answer these things individually. And first, let's deal with our freedom. Are we free? And I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious. Let's just do a pop quiz because I know how much you guys love those. So raise your hand if you think that we're free. Good. Most, most of you raised your hand. Raise your hand if you think that God is sovereign. Okay. Now tell me how that works. Free under his sovereignty. Go ahead. So I, I can't explain it very well, but like I, I, I do know what it's like to play chess against a grandmaster chess player. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you, you're free to make any moves you want on the board within the context of the rules. You move the knights, pawn all kind of stuff. But quickly you get in a position where you're doing what that guy wants you to do. And if you, if you depart from it, something terrible is going to happen. But something terrible is going to happen. point is... This per- you're free to do anything, but this person can control you and make you do what he wants you to do. I mean, to figure God is so much better than a chess grandmaster. I, 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 I think we're free, mm-hmm. but, but God makes it so we do, in our, in, our, in our free will, we do what he wants us to do. Kind of like that. I- that's, that's interesting. That, that's, a, that's a really good, good analogy, except that I, keep, I, I heard you say three or four times, God makes us do. Now, the moment you say that, then what you're really saying is, I'm not free. Even if you think you are, which I think is what you're getting at, you think your movements are free, but he's actually controlling you. But if we say that, then what we're really doing is we're saying, no, God can't be sovereign and we be free at the same time. But I think that we are free. I think the Bible teaches that we're free, and I think we can see it specifically in this example. And the reason I walked you through the whole story instead of just going to those few verses in Genesis 50 and then moving on from there is because I wanted you to understand that along the way in this story, people were making choices. I mean, they were making free choices. And it's interesting that he says to his brothers, not only did they make choices, But he defines the kind of choices that they made. And he defines them by saying, yeah, that they were evil. Now, if we say that God's really somehow, in a grand sense, controlling their actions, that they did it, but God's controlling it, then we're saying something blasphemous about God. Because then we're saying that God... Caused the evil. God did not cause the evil. Who did it? They did it. God's, God did not cause them to do the evil. But really, He defines their actions. And what about Potiphar's wife? What she did. She was an evil woman. She not only tried to seduce Joseph, she was intent on being unfaithful to her husband. Then she fabricated a whole, a whole story 
that led to the downfall of, of Joseph and being, him being cast away into prison. Everything that she did. I mean, there's nothing in the narrative that she did that wasn't evil. And so again, if we're saying, well, John, I'm not picking on you, but I'm saying that if we use that analogy, we say, well, we're, we're acting, but God's controlling those actions. We can't really say that because then we'd have to ascribe the evil ultimately to God. This is where we get into these big philosophical questions about the origin of evil and all those things that we're not going to answer tonight. But you can see, I think, clearly enough that they were free. Joseph, I think, because he raises the question of their intent and says that their intent was evil, that's enough for us to say that they were making the choice on their own, of their own free will. They chose to do evil. So, are we free to make our own choices? I believe the answer is yes. I believe we're truly free to make our own choices. I believe we can choose good in some senses, in our limited capacity, but we can also very much choose evil of our own free will. So if we're saying, am I free? Answer number one is yes. The next question then is, is God sovereign? So was God in complete control of the outcome here? The answer is yes. And verse 20 shows us that, that God had a plan. When we look at verse 20, and the language is, I think, really important. Where it says, as for you, you meant it for evil. So there's their intent, their choices. But God meant it for good. And then the next words are, I think, even more important than those. Where he says, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And those words, to bring it about. When he says, God meant it for good, to bring it about, what he's saying is not that God was hoping something would happen, not that God was guiding things in a good direction, but specifically that God had a plan to do this thing. So they had a choice. They're free. We answer yes, we're free. Is God sovereign? Was God in supreme control? Yes. The other scripture I mentioned is Genesis 41, 25. This is when Joseph is called to... In, interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And when he hears the dream, it says in verse 25, then Pharaoh, or then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. So he's given these two dreams, and he says the dreams of Pharaoh are one, and God has revealed to Pharaoh what? What he is about to do. So again, God is working his plan. Now, I said that we would address the tension, but we can't really resolve it, can we? And I think this is the key thing to understand, that God's sovereignty and man's free will are both taught in Scripture, and I don't believe that they're in conflict to one another. I don't believe they're in conflict to one another. I don't believe they're contradictory to one another. I believe they're both clearly there. And this is going to, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. This is exactly what you want to hear tonight. I believe they're both there. And I believe there's no way we can ever resolve the tension between the two. 
I don't think we can understand. But I do want to say this. I do believe that God's sovereignty is not offensive. I don't think that we should view it as offensive. I believe that God's sovereignty is really the only thing that makes this world tolerable. It's the only thing that makes this life tolerable. Like really, imagine a world where we lived without Romans 8.28. Imagine the world that said, we're totally free and God's just reacting to us along the way. I mean, that's a horrible thought, isn't it? A horrible thought. It's better for us to just understand that God is sovereign. We can understand. I think it's interesting that when Joseph's in prison and he asks the cupbearer to remember him, he seems to have no idea what's next. He just says, tell him to remember me because I don't want to be in this place anymore. I want to be set free. And I imagine that if he had just called him up set him free and said, you're free to go, I think he probably would have tried to find his way back home. He didn't really know what was going on either, so I don't think you have to understand it. I don't think you have to get it. I don't think we have to resolve it. We just have to know that it's there. God is sovereign. God is able to work every single thing together for good in our lives, even when we do our very best to ruin it.